Hi, I'm Amanda. And I'm Katie. And we're the founders of the Best Life Moms Club and hosts of That Pregnancy Podcast. We are two moms with a bunch of kids under the age of three. Five to be exact. And we know firsthand how hard it is to be a mom. So we're talking about all the topics that no one ever talked to us about. And not only is it hard being a mom, but it can be lonely and isolating, which is another reason why we're here to help moms like you know that you're not alone. Now, it's important to know that we are not doctors or medical professionals in any way. So always talk to your doctor or healthcare provider with any questions or concerns about your health or the health of your baby. We are moms sharing our lived experience and talking about all things pregnancy and life as a mom. So let's have a chat. Hello and welcome to That Pregnancy Podcast. This week, we're talking with another one of the ladies in our mommy mentorship program, Carolyn, about her birth story. Now, I'll let you know that there is a trigger warning with her story as Carolyn has medical post-traumatic stress disorder from her childhood medical history. She is very open and honest about how she deals with her PTSD and how it has impacted her birth experience. If you suffer from PTSD or have had a traumatic event in the past that you think may cause you some distress during birth, please talk with your doctor and a therapist so that you can process things and be prepared for giving birth. Carolyn has done a very good job explaining how she processed everything and gives tips for other ladies who might experience the same thing. With that, here's the episode. How was your pregnancy? Yeah, I'd say like, if we go to the start of my pregnancy, it was pretty, I don't want to say easy. I don't feel like that's the best word, but I didn't have morning sickness. I kind of just like continued, found out I was pregnant. It was all good. Uh, I didn't really have a lot of doctor's appointments, obviously because of COVID. So I just, you know, kind of went to work, followed the weeks on those apps to see how it was going. And then obviously I got pregnant in December and then March is where everything started to lock down. So it was almost right when it was time that I could publicly announce I was pregnant. I was home. And a lot of times when people say like, how was your pregnancy? How did it go? I say that I don't feel like I had the same experience as a lot of people because right when it starts to, you know, you're showing more, maybe physical stuff kicks in. I was home. And I was working from home. I was sitting most of the time. Like my physical activity was getting out to walk the dog. So I don't feel like I had a pregnancy where going to work was difficult and things like that, which I hear from a lot of people, you know, doing that daily stuff, making the commute, that's all difficult. And I didn't experience that the same way. Because you were working from home on a computer. Yeah, like there was a period of time where I realized my car hadn't moved from the driveway in six weeks. I was like, wow, I have been home. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. Because in the spring of last year, I had I had a realization that I had not filled up my van with gas in four months. Yeah, that was me too. Yeah. Like, this is great. I thought I'd be saving money doing that, but I just kept buying so much baby stuff that I'm like... <laughs> It's not offsetting. <laughs> so you had a healthy, like you, like you said, you had a healthy pregnancy 
and you weren't going to the doctors often, but when you were going to the doctor, were you going to like your family GP or were you going to see an OB or did you go with, were you thinking about the going the route of a midwife? I knew midwife was never for me. I just figured, and to give the context here, because I am a childhood cancer survivor, effects from that, I had osteosarcoma when I was 12. There's always like little things that come up that are effects from having chemotherapy so young that are not something that can be told or planned to you. So I always just kind of had this idea that there'd be bumps. So I never went the midwife route because I'm like, I don't think even though things seem to be okay in the first trimester, I don't think I'm going to be a person who could naturally deliver. I always felt in the back of my head, there was going to be complications just because you get this idea with your body when you've gone through something so young. I've always had this idea that my body's not perfect. It's not good. And that's why I, I was always just waiting for something around the corner to go wrong. So I told this to my general doctor and I find with, my cancer, it seems like it's one that not a lot of doctors have a lot of experience with. So I try to tell them what I've gone through, tell them how, you know, I've lost bones to this and I've had artificial bones put in my femur, things like that. Some of I've had hearing loss from some of the chemo and doctors really don't know how to approach it. So my doctor was pretty much like, you seem okay. You know, you're not an age that is old. So I don't think you need to go to an OB. I don't think you need to go to anyone high risk. It always felt a little wrong to me that I didn't see someone more about complications that could happen. But I tried to kind of put that in the back of my head and say, I'm going to trust that my body's doing the right thing for once and it's going to go okay. And so I really didn't see an OB until 28 weeks, maybe. Wow. And so the reason why you kind of just like took your doctor's word was because you trusted them as a doctor and a medical professional and just assumed that they knew what they were talking about. I wouldn't say it's that it was that I kind of the relationship I have with hospitals and things like that is the more I can distance myself, the better. I don't want to see a doctor if I don't have to. I don't want to put myself in that situation. So if someone who is from that field is telling me I'm fine, I don't have to go in, I don't have to put myself in that environment that triggers a lot of trauma for me, I'm going to say, okay, if that's what you say, I'm going to keep my distance. And also, I think first pregnancy, like first time I'd ever been pregnant, I think there's a lot of being naive that comes with that of like, what could go wrong? It didn't even really think about that it had been so long that I didn't hear the heartbeat for a really long time. It just wasn't something they were doing. I don't know if it was part of COVID for that too, but I didn't really think about wanting to hear the heartbeat right away, wanting to see more ultrasounds, things like that. Just, I kind of was home and, and felt comfortable at home and didn't push anything much further than that. I totally, it totally makes sense. It totally does. And like you said, like there's that night there, that naivete that's there but then also like what you said about from your personal experience, wanting to just like, if you say I'm okay, then I'm not going to push it because I don't want to have to be dealing with medic, like the medical field at all. That totally makes sense. Yeah. So then you, you moved into OB care mm -hmm. and when you got to your OB at like 28 weeks, so you, did you go every one, like once a month at that point, or were you going every two weeks or how did it go when you got transferred into OB care? 
Yeah, okay. I went, I think I went once a month and then went for the two weeks. Like I, I went pretty traditional with everything. And when I saw my OB, I find it really difficult to talk about my past. So I feel like maybe I'm not as open as I should be about everything that I've gone through in the past. And I said to her, you know, I'm worried about giving natural birth because the type of cancer I had, it happened when I was 12. So it happened before puberty and obviously having a metal insert into my femur, I didn't grow properly. I'm slanted a bit. I didn't know how it affects my pelvis. And I just thought, you know, I don't feel like this could work naturally. I'm just, I'm so tilted two inches on one side. Can't that be an issue for giving natural birth? And she didn't seem concerned either. I went to see a high-risk doctor once just because I, I was like, you know, it, I would feel like I should know more about this. And all he did was he put my leg in a stirrup and he's like, yeah, you can do that. You're good. And once again, it was just the like, all right, <laughs> I guess you know what you're talking about. No way. He just yeah. took you out to see if you could reach a stirrup. To yeah, he's like, your knee goes up. My knee is also artificial inside as well. I don't have the same mobility. So I, once again, doctors, if that's not their field, they don't seem to understand how my body is healed from this and what the cancer has done over the years. So I think he really thought that I was just like, oh, can I get into a birthing position when I was trying to talk about, I think it's issues more internally that could cause a problem down the line. <laughs> like, it's just so like, so crazy to think that they're just so nonchalant with the idea of when you're saying you know, just a heads up, like I have an artificial femur, I have an artificial knee, I'm two inches shorter on one leg. Like, it's it, one it, of those things, yeah, that I feel like because I've had all my prosthesis on the inside of my leg, it's almost like you look at me and you're like, well, you look okay. Like, I don't feel like when I say I'm a cancer survivor, it holds the same weight. When I say I have an artificial leg and you see skin, you're like, yeah, you did something 20 years ago, you should, you're fine. Right. I don't feel it's taken with the same weight as maybe somebody else. Because you don't have a, a, like an external artificial leg. Because yeah, you but don't I do have, have an artificial leg and yeah. they, they can't make that connection. It's odd. Because you're not technically an, you're not an amputee because you still have a leg. It's mm -hmm. just internally, it is artificial. Yeah. That's so the, the easiest way I talk about it for people who are Canadian, as I say, like I had the same cancer as Terry Fox. And that connects with a lot of people because we know Terry Fox is this Canadian hero. Obviously he had his leg amputated. And I say, because of where we've gotten in medical sciences since then, I was able to have parts removed, but not to the point of having to get something amputated. Right. It kind of helps, but it's still hard for people to wrap their heads around. Well, yeah, because it is such a like foreign concept of, you know, internally not like you would think, you know, it, it is I can understand the hard concept because looking at you, you would say you look fine. You have a leg. Everything's fine. And that's crazy that the doctors kind of just were blase about it and like, OK. And so the rest of your pregnancy was your third trimester was OK. You were healthy, like you were feeling good. I was feeling good. I didn't have any concerns. It wasn't until I got around 
maybe 36 weeks that, you know, we are going for weekly appointments and the nurse that brought me in before I saw my OB, you know, you do that general routine of getting weighed, getting your blood pressure. And then she said to me, you know, your blood pressure has been a little high. And that was the first time I had heard of this being an issue. And it surprised me because once again, I've been through so much medical past when it comes to blood pressure, I've always run a low blood pressure. So like for a concern in pregnancy, having a high blood pressure, it wasn't even on my radar that that could be something that would happen to me. And that's when they started talking about maybe not letting me go to term because they really wanted to monitor the blood pressure. And were they talking the blood pressure as in like, what were they concerned about? Do you know? They were concerned that it was too high. That's really all they said to me. They weren't concerned that I had any issues with the baby, anything like that. They just were like, it's running high. And I think they just felt it would be more comfortable for them, comfortable for me if they scheduled a time for me to be induced. That's still where they were. They were still like, it's going to be natural birth. That's fine. But we would really like to maybe schedule a day for you to be induced. She said to me, we don't want you to go past 40 weeks. So that was always kind of in my head. And because I'm such a control freak and such a planner, I was like, tell me the day. I would much prefer a day than to be one of these people where you hear all the stories of like counting your contractions, waiting for your water to break. You know, I was like, no, I don't need that. Just tell me when you want to induce me. I'm fine with it. Any day I'll make myself available. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just schedule it in. So yeah. just going back to your high blood pressure, did they ever mention that they were worried about preeclampsia, which is high blood pressure in in pregnancy? It never, it never came up. And I had a cousin who ended up delivering three words early because of preeclampsia but uh so i when the blood pressure came up i'm like oh i've just heard about this my cousin was having high blood pressure but they never really said why they were concerned they just said you know because it's high we're gonna induce you at 40 weeks okay and did you make it to 40 weeks my induction date i would have been 40 weeks exactly on uh The 15th was my due date always, 15th of September. And I was scheduled to be induced on the 12th of September. Oh, that's my wedding anniversary (laughs) was your due date. (laughs) It was my due date. I didn't end up giving birth on the 12th, but that's when the whole process, I guess it would have started the day before a little bit, but that was the day I went into the hospital. Okay. So then why don't you tell us a little bit about like, how did your induction go? So you went into the hospital um and what did because like you said induction and your induction date isn't necessarily when they start the induction process yeah so for me they had told me beforehand that maybe they were going to insert a balloon into me the day before to start me getting dilated so I went the 12th is a Saturday I went to see my OB on the Friday And she said that I was a centimeter dilated. So she's like, I don't think we're going to do anything. You're just going to come the morning of tomorrow morning, like right in the morning. I came at like 7 a.m. And she's like, we're just going to go from there, start doing a route with some drugs rather than inserting anything into me. So I went home, uh, didn't really sleep. (laughs) I phoned in the morning to be like, hey, I was told I could be induced today. Can I come in? And, you know, like. I, as much as I was like, yes, I want it scheduled. I was like, 
maybe tell me if I can't come right away. Like, am I ready? <laughs> Was that because you were nervous? Oh yeah. Like I, like I said, I didn't have morning sickness. The first time I puked my entire pregnancy is when I woke up on the 12th and I'm like, well, there we go. <laughs> because, and probably be, was it because you were feeling sick because you were physically so nervous about like, this is going to happen. I, I probably worked myself up a lot about it for sure. Uh, yeah, like I, I feel like I stayed so calm for the entire pregnancy. And then when that came, like it all came right away of all the emotions I was having. So yeah, I was sick. I started being like crying things like that. My husband was really good about it, but yeah, like it definitely hit me that morning and especially I'm phoning seven in the morning and they're like, no, we're good. There wasn't a lot of births. You can come right in. I'm like, oh, great. <laughs> like, okay. See we're here. Oh, <laughs> yeah. And, and so you went in and how did it go? So I went in, it's, it seemed like a really chill process to start off in that way. Like I just walk in, they're like, you're here to be induced. And I'm like, yep, got my bag. You know, I got into some comfy clothes. I remember I put slippers on that were like these little unicorn slippers and they're like, oh, that's really cute. But you'll get blood all over them once you start labor. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is really happening. <laughs> That's, it's like like shocking but also funny at the same time like yeah I almost like felt like I went in like I'm on like a little hotel stay in the hospital like setting up my bag setting up my stuff and I'm like oh I'm here to do something huge that's messy yeah very messy <laughs> yeah so it started off you know giving me the drug route of things I honestly can't remember what the medication was that they gave me Okay. And was it I, through IV? Was it suppository? Was it, pill? it was through, it was through IV. And, you know, as much as I say that process was chill, the IV is the first moment where I knew that this was going to be a rough thing for me. Uh, something to give context again, you know, this past medical history of everything I've had, I have PTSD from what I went and it's been a long time for me to actually be able to say that comfortably, you know, um, going like as, through some, as a child, you mean like as a child, have, yeah, so you have PTSD from your cancer experience. Yeah. And it's, it's always been something odd that I haven't wanted to talk about because, you know, I've already had so many issues physically. I didn't want to admit to having issues mentally. So it was something I blocked for a very long time. And also saying like, I have PTSD. I feel like that's only something you hear from people who were in the war or something like that. So trying to explain like, I had cancer as a child. It was very traumatic. I didn't process it very well. And to say like, yeah, that was 20 years ago. I'm 32 now. Um, and dealing with that now, I actually coincidentally it's been a long process of actually getting that formal diagnosis of I have PTSD and I finally got in touch with being set up with a therapist who could help me during my pregnancy and that was when I realized he said to me you know have you thought about triggers going into the hospital to give birth and I realized wow I'm going into the hospital again for something huge who knows how this is going to trigger me and the IV was the first time that I had something that set me off. And that's when the medical staff realized 
I wasn't going to be an easy patient. Right. And yeah, when your, your therapist kind of said, like, asked you, you know, have you thought about this? Did you, you don't have to give us like specifics, but like, did he give you, or did you guys create a plan together to kind of help you process and cope with that? Yeah, I really liked talking to the therapist that I was eventually set up with after years of waiting to actually get some mental health therapy. And he really took it from like what my brain is trying to do and how it's not coming at a place of trying to do something bad. It's trying to protect me. And then how to handle the physiological responses that can happen when you're triggered by something, when you're having a flashback. And we talked about you know, what I could do if I'm in a situation where something is causing me distress. So we talked about that of a a couple little strategies that I could have going into things. Wow. Um, Okay. So the IV triggered you. And Mm -hmm. then obviously it was your, your husband was fully aware. Like, obviously I'm assuming that your husband like was in on the plan and knew exactly like kind of how to support you in labor and you know, to try and help you with the triggers and knowing full well that there's going to be challenges and there's going to be triggers with this delivery? He definitely knew there was going to be challenges. It's something that I feel like still is, I always worry about talking about mental health issues that I'm going to be labeled as dramatic. So I'd say even still with my husband, I wasn't as open about how much I was going to struggle, you know, through us you know, dating, being married, PTSD, it's not something that happens daily. It's not like he's really seen when something really affects me. Definitely, I've talked about stuff and he's seen I'm upset and kind of spinning out, but he hasn't seen till that day, really, what happens if something really gets to me and I fixate on it and I'm distressed about it. Right. Okay. So you get your IV Mm -hmm. and then how does, how does things, how do things go for you? So I had the IV. Really what happened when I had the IV is I just started thinking about times I have very poor veins, about times where I've had to have an IV put in several, several times. It's been very painful and had to have several people come in and place these IVs. And that happened with this one. And I was like, here we go again. Like I'm back in this pattern. So it took me a while of just trying to calm down from that. I, I just needed to kind of be in my own place. And then we were back on track that seemed like we were on the right way. I was dilating very slowly, but you know, I just, I sat back, I let it do its thing. I kind of felt what my body was doing and I got an epidural, I'd say right in time before the pain really kicked in very strongly. So I was like, wow, I'm listening to my body. It's going really well. And I wasn't, like I say, dilating as quickly as I could. So this started around seven in the morning and by the afternoon, they gave me a peanut shaped pillow. And all I really had to do was lie with that kind of opening up my hips Mm -hmm. um, to help with that. I guess at that point I had had my water broken for me as well, which scared me quite a bit to have it broken. I wasn't expecting the way that they did it. So that was another thing that made me a a bit emotional, I'd say. Was it like the gush of the water that upset you? Like, or was was it a trickle or? It wasn't the gush. It was the instrument. You look down. (laughs) Yeah. And I could, I could feel it. And she was saying to me, is this hurting you or are you feeling 
uncomfortable mentally. And I had to say, it's mental. It's mental. You're not hurting me. But she could tell because when I get really worked up, I start to kind of shake. So she knew that I was in a place where I was starting to get a bit distressed. Um, Yeah. So I I had my water broken. Once that was done, I was like, well, okay, we're good with that. The peanut ball was good. When I remove my water being broken and getting that first IV, the rest of the day was very just waiting to see what happened. I wasn't in a lot of pain. I wasn't really doing much of anything. I actually slept for a bit of it. So you. I was like, yeah, I was like, this is going to be easy. We've got everything. We've got the medicine. We're on the right track. They're going to tell me when to push. And they said, when we tell you when to push, it's probably going to be an hour of pushing and then it's going to be over. So it's like, okay, we're, we're doing, my body's doing what it's supposed to be doing. Even though I'm feeling distressed, we're on the path we're supposed to be on. How did you feel the, like the nursing staff and the med- like the medical staff responded to your PTSD and your stress? I'd say at first they were good. You know, when I had that IV and you could see there was distress, the nurse said to me, oh, there's some trauma here. Is there? And I said, yes. So first they were the IV issues i i it still surprised me that ivy was the biggest thing that really distressed me and triggered me a lot uh they weren't so nice as my medical journey continued and i was upset about the IV because there was periods of time after birth which is another part of it where it could have come out and they wouldn't take it out because they're like we're not going to go through this with you again so put it back in later yeah so i'd say at the start before i had given birth they were understanding after birth, I want to say they were really tired of me by that point. <laughs> but yeah, I'd say they were supportive during that Saturday. Right. And so you get, you know, you're doing your thing, you have your nap, you, which is amazing, especially under the amount of stress that you were under. Uh, yeah. How did, what do you think of the peanut ball? I thought it was fine because I wasn't doing anything. It's like, this is fine. It's not uncomfortable. So again, I think it's because I got the epidural right when I really needed it. When I was starting to say like, when do you think I should get the epidural? They said, it may take a while for someone to get here. So you may want to stay on top of that. And I said, well, why don't we say I need the epidural now if it's going to take a long time? Yeah. And when he came into the room to give me an epidural, I was starting to feel pain. And it's like, I got it right in time. I never felt like that wave crashed over in that part of my induction process. Well, that's good. Yeah. Cause lucky, yeah. cause there are some times where, you know, you say, Oh, I can hold it a little bit longer. And then they're like, okay, well, I, cause I know this hat, like, from experience with some, like with one of the delivery, with the delivery that I was in and not me giving birth, but like as a support person where it was like, okay, we would like the epidural. And they're like, oh, he just went into emergency surgery. He'll be out in maybe two hours. And it's like, (gasps) yeah. And that's, I believe a friend had told me that, that said, when you get there, talk about the epidural right away because you don't want to be waiting. And that kind of stuck in my head. So yeah, maybe for others, the peanut ball could be uncomfortable, but I feel like I was medicated at the point that it was just lying back and I was letting my body do its thing. How long did it take for you to dilate and progress from, you know, peanut ball to, did it just kind of go smoothly to going from peanut ball to pushing? 
it seemed like it was going that way. It was a long process because I started at seven in the morning and I don't believe I was told to start pushing until nine at night. So yeah, yeah you know, first baby, maybe that's not very long if we're starting from one centimeter dilated to getting to the point of pushing. Uh, we were at it all day. My husband wasn't prepared for how long we we're going to be in the hospital. Cause he's like, yeah, you'll have the baby in the morning. I know you have to be there 24 hours. We'll be home tomorrow afternoon. Can let the dog out and everything will be good. And I was like, I think you should prepare for something longer. <laughs> he didn't bring a change of clothes. He wasn't going to do any of those things. And then I was like, change of clothes, Just at least a change of clothes. I think you'll need it. Yeah. Especially too, like, even if, if everything does go really fast and like, you are going to be out in 24 hours, you know, like, like you said earlier on, like birth is messy. And just because you're like, yes, it's messy for you, but it can also be very messy for your support person. (laughs) Like you might want to, you might want to change a clothes. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it was around 930 when I started pushing and I went, okay, well, here's my hour. I'm going to be doing this, getting ready to do my hour of pushing and I'll have a baby. Because that's what they told you. Yeah. I'm following that, you know, it's just going about what I've been told. (laughs) (laughs) And pushing, how did pushing go? Well, (laughs) that's when things started to go a little off the rails. I had when my nurse was in the room saying, push, push, push. I was just, you know, following how I was supposed to breathe. I thought I was doing what my body was supposed to be doing. I thought I was in the position, you know, they say push like you're having a poop. And I was like, okay, I feel like I'm doing this. And the nurse was like, wow, it's great. You're doing really good. And then my OB would come in and she would look and she's like, you are not doing what I need. I'm like, oh. I thought I was doing great because the nurse is cheering me on. I'm like, I'm doing it. It's perfect. I'm opening like a flower. It's all great. (laughs) And then the OB just kept coming in and kind of like shattering this like positivity being like, no, this is not what we need at all. Nothing's happening. You're not pushing like I need. I was like, okay. And then she started doing what we talked about this after my birth. She started her way of trying to motivate me which was to call me weak. She said to me, you seem like you're too weak to do this. You are too weak. You are not pushing properly. And I learned that is the worst word to say to me. And it really, really affected me. I feel like my whole life I've been fighting with this body. I've never felt as perfect. It's been lesser than the average body. I felt like I've been weak in this body and I'm in this moment when I'm giving birth and she's just telling me everything I've already internalized and thought about myself. Oh my God. Yeah. So I, once again, you know, with PTSD, you don't know when something's really going to hit you hard and how it's going to hit you. And being told that I was weak. I'm like, I knew it. I knew my body was going to fail. I knew it was going to be a failure. And here we are. She's confirming that I'm failing. Oh my goodness. I, I'm so sorry. That is absolutely horrible. Yeah. And definitely afterwards, when I continued on therapy about this, that fixation was something that was really rough. My therapist was super upset about it too, because 
You know, it was just the wrong type of motivation for me. My OB is a very nice lady. I don't look at her with like malice or anger. You know, it was just really the wrong approach for me. But that shouldn't be a good approach for anyone. That's like, I think <laughs> using like I think that psychology, like it's, it's just like, yeah, I think she, she's done this in the past maybe. And it's been like, oh, I'll show you. And you, you motivate through fire. And you know, that just was not going to be what was going to happen to me. Wow. I'm so sorry. That is absolutely horrible. And yes. I, I can't even imagine like, like, you, like having internalized and always felt like you've been let down by your body and that you're weak in your body. And then, like you said, having someone tell you in this like moment where all you need to do is like trust in your body and like have your body prove that, no, I'm strong and I can do this because everybody says like, you're a woman, this is what you're made to do. And then that happening. I'm so sorry. Yeah. I think that definitely started the spiral of where I wasn't in the moment anymore. You know, I really got into this path and I, I've been one with my PTSD to have flashbacks. And I think this kind of opened the path for that because it got to the point where I didn't feel like I was in the room. I was having a very specific flashback at the time from when I was having my chemotherapy and there was a certain drug that I was given that made me produce really yellow pee. This is really odd, but so it made me produce really yellow pee. Whenever I had to go in hospital for this specific type of drug, I was always monitored to make sure it was flushing out of my system because it can really do a lot of effects of your kidneys. And for some reason, that was the memory I was stuck in. I didn't feel like I was in the room. I wasn't present anymore. I could just see me as 12 years old in the pajamas that I was in, in that bathroom, going through that. And it was it was really odd that that's kind of where my mind went and I can still hear them telling me to push. And it just, it, it wasn't going well. They were saying like, I guess she's tiring. You know, they didn't know what was going on. And I remember I turned to my husband and I said, you need to come here. And I whispered in his ear, I'm having a flashback. And so that's where my head was at. I reflected back to this because, you know, trying to get to this idea that, when you're having these things happen, your body's not failing you. It's trying to protect you. And I, I feel like what was going on in that moment is at that time, you know, when you're having that drug, you have to get it out of your body to make sure everything in your body's safe. My body was somehow making this connection. You have a baby inside you. You have to get that baby out to be safe. And I think that's where the wires kind of got crossed. And that's why I got stuck in this continued memory again and again. Wow. So yeah, I I don't feel like once that started to happen, I didn't really feel like I was present in the room or present in what was really going on at that point. How long did they let you push or try to push? I feel like it went on maybe two hours. I know that as this was going on, before I kind of got out of it, we were thinking about how midnight was going to approach. When would I give birth? And I know because we'll get to when we went to emergency C-section, but I know because of the paperwork, I delivered my son at 1.30 in the morning for mm-hmm. the 13th. So there's a span of hours kind of there. So I believe it was about two hours before 
there was talk of we're going to need a different plan. So even after you tell your husband that you're in a flashback, they continue to make you push. He said to them, and once again, it's so foggy at this point. I, I was well, already yeah. drugged by an epidural. I'm in this place in my mind fixated. I'm not in the right headspace. And I remember him just trying to say, it's a mental thing right now, you know, because they were talking about my body's fatigued and he's trying to, in the most polite way, because I hadn't, I hadn't told people this. I hadn't advocated that I'm going in with that severe level of trauma for them to be aware that it could get to that point. So he's trying to say, I don't think she's tired physically. I think she's tired mentally. Right. Without saying the exact words of she's in a flashback. She can't like she's not present. Yeah. And then so you're in this situation where your husband's trying to relay where you're at. You are essentially out of body in stuck in this vicious flashback loop. Your medical team is saying, you know, like come on, you need to do this, but you're not doing it. And eventually, after hours of trying to make you push, they make they eventually make the decision that it's time for a C-section or is there something that happens to say, we need to have a C-section? It was all me. There was nothing they saw on the baby. They were just like, it just doesn't seem like you're doing what we need anymore. You're giving us no other option but a C-section. And at that point, I... I was saying, whatever, like, do what you need to do. I'm just, I'm not in the headspace to think like, oh, okay, I'll give it some more pushes. I can get this back. I couldn't get it back. I remember them putting paperwork in front of me to say I could do the emergency C-section. I was giving them the consent. That's really all I remember. I, I was, I was really out of it at that point. I just, the best way I can describe it is I really wasn't present at that point. It absolutely makes sense. And ultimately, it's just like, I completely understand of like, you saying like, just at this point, just I need it done. Like, yeah. just do it. But your baby was, was, wasn't, you know, he wasn't decelerating, everything was okay with him. He just wasn't progressing, being pushed. Yeah, they're saying you're pushing and we're not seeing him move further. So I guess you're giving us no other option. So I'm stuck in this. I'm stuck in the, like, I'm failing. Like, yeah, C-section. Do a C-section. Yeah, absolutely. So you get in the C-section. Does everything go okay in the C-section? At that point, I was so distressed. I was in this headspace that I was at the point where when I went into the room, they knew I wasn't in a good headspace. And before, you know, they started the process to give me a C-section, they said, we need to sedate her. And so that was at the point of saying, you know, you're not going to feel a lot of pain. We're going to get through this, but also start running the drugs to sedate her. And I remember screaming at them, I feel everything. I feel everything. It's not working. I feel everything. And I remember hearing them say like, sedate her quicker. We need to calm her down. Because and you were screaming, you were, were you, you know, obviously you, you don't know, but like, I'm assuming that your husband has probably told you, like, were you, you were screaming, were you crying? Like you were, I, I don't want to use the word hysterical because it's such a terrible word, but you were screaming because you could, could you feel the contractions or what? 
was that actually in like the operating room doing the C-section that you could feel everything? That's what I said. I, I just kept saying to them, I feel everything. Cause they're like, you're in the operating room. We're doing everything. We're giving you more medication. You shouldn't be able to feel anything about the, except the pressure when he take, when we take the baby out. And I said, no, you're wrong. That's why I kept just yelling at them. I feel everything. I feel everything. What I'm talking about is at that point, it's almost like word salad. I'm just screaming at them. You're wrong. I feel everything. I feel in pain. They really didn't know what to do with me at that point. Do you, are you like, are you sedated? Like, do they put you under? I remember feeling the pressure of the baby coming out and just being in such a fog. I couldn't tell you another thing. So I couldn't, I, I can't remember the baby crying. I can't remember a single thing of that. They didn't bring the baby to me. You know, it was just a fog of, I don't know if you've been under anesthetic that I was, I wasn't fully out, but you know, you were in such a fog that you could hear maybe a conversation here or there. But and not, again, you're not present. I'm not present. And I know that they did everything they need to needed to do. No idea how long that took. Right. No idea how long. All I know is the baby was out. And after that, I just checked out. Right. Didn't think about a single thing. Thinking back on it, realizing I didn't think about, is he crying? Does he look okay? You know, it wasn't even there. It was like, I'm done. I've done what I've needed to do. Um, I've been told from my husband that when they were taking the baby out, I had one doctor with essentially the best way of describing this is when they cut open my stomach, the doctor's hands met in the middle to get my baby. Oh, you I, mean as in like there was a ba- there was a hand through your vagina up the birth contra- canal? And then a hand in my stomach and they met in the middle to wedge him out. And this is when, and this is all from my husband kind of telling me, when they realized my hips were not in a point where the baby could ever come out. He was <sighs> stuck on my hips like I was worried this whole time, it was nothing to do with my pushing. It was never going to happen that way. And they realized when they looked inside and saw my pelvis, they went, wow, yeah, this baby wasn't going to come out. Because he was wedged behind your hip. Yeah. Oh my God. Wow. And had people like doctors in your pregnancy, even like do you think they would have been able to figure that out even with like an x-ray or a, you know, a physical examination to kind of gauge where your hips were at? Had they taken your concerns seriously? I honestly don't know. They, you know, could have been at that point, they wanted to save face and they were, they told me like, this is nothing we could have predicted until we actually opened you up and physically saw what's going on. Though, you know, we do have all these things of x-rays and imaging inside the body. I would think that if you really looked into it or even did an exam to see where my hips sit, I would think I shouldn't have been in that position. Right. I don't feel like I should have been in that position. You should have had a scheduled C-section from the beginning because there was just no physical way that your son was going to be ever delivered vaginally. Yeah, that's what I was told in the end, you know, and it was like, 
this feeling of being like, I told you so. And that's what I feel like I've had in so much of my medical history of trying to speak up and advocate for myself and it never being taken seriously, which has led to me, you know, distancing myself and blocking myself from communicating with the medical community for so long. Cause I just feel like every time I do try to speak up, it kind of swatted aside. Right. Wow. That is so sad and absolutely like hypothetically, like not necessarily like all your truth, like the triggers could have been avoided, but a lot of what you suffered could have been even just like mitigated a little bit or, you know, addressed and prepared for rather than, you know, your doctor telling you that you're weak and you can't do this. Like, yeah, there's a lot that could have been avoided. Um, I don't know if it's, you know, that I didn't advocate properly. I don't know if it's distancing because of COVID. I don't know if this could have happened a normal way if we were in a different time. I, I honestly don't know if it's something they could have predicted, but it was frustrating and having this feeling like I told you so. And being in all this pain, delivering both ways, pushing, putting through that trauma mentally and physically, and now having to recover from a C-section as well. Mm -hmm. It just felt frustrating that there was so much that I didn't have to go through and I was put through. Yeah. And you're right. Like you, that's something that I've completely forgotten about is like the fact that you were doing all this during COVID as well, like, which adds a whole nother layer of questioning of, you know, because when, when we've been pregnant during the pandemic is like, you know, appointments are either canceled or delayed or they're done over the phone. And like the care, the medical care is not the in-person physical care that we've traditionally experienced, like that is received by pregnant women. Mm -hmm. And it's all I know now, because that was my first pregnancy. I I don't know how it would be in a a different circumstance, nothing to compare to. Um, okay. So kind of going back into your birth timeline. So your son comes out, you're mentally, you're done, which completely makes absolute sense of, okay, I, you know, he's out. Like I can't be like, I'm just exhausted. I can't do this mentally anymore. Um, and your recovery. So do you stay in that? Does that go smoothly for you? I feel bad as you're talking to me. I really reading for the moment. It's going to go smooth. And I got to tell you, it never comes. (laughs) I'm like, I'm just hoping for you. Like, please tell me something goes right for you. It's not. No, I was in the hospital for five days in total. So I was in longer than you normally get with a C-section because afterwards there was two parts. There was parts going on with me and parts going on with my son. So for me, uh, they had to give me blood transfusions. Um, They discovered my iron was too low and that was an issue. And so I had to get transfusions. Um, My son, they were worried about his jaundice level and it never got to the point where he had to go under a lamp, but they kind of kept being like, We'll just, you know, keep you another day and see how it goes. You've got stuff going on, you know, we're going to both keep you and see how it's going. So I was in there quite a long time. I, 
I want to say we started this on the 12th to be induced and I wasn't home until the 17th. So it was kind of monitoring things with me, making sure the transfusions went okay, making sure that I was healing from the C-section okay, and watching him for his jaundice levels to make sure that was okay as well. Because jaundice is something that, while very common in newborns, is also extremely scary when you're being told like, oh, we're just going to watch like and see how he re- like how his body reacts. Yeah. And that was difficult for me because it's like, okay, is there a problem or is there not? Because if there's a problem, let's get them under the lights, whatever you need to do, let's get it right away. It was this prolonged of continually being in this hospital setting, which is making me uncomfortable already and waiting to see, you know, my blood pressure was high. It's still high. Is this an issue? How am I doing with the blood transfusions? How am I recovering from the C-section? It felt like I was kept there so long in this wait and see process that nothing felt resolved or comfortable. Were you ever diagnosed with preeclampsia? Because you were never, even though your blood pressure was high after you deliver? No, I was never diagnosed. I had to go for um, an echo. I had to go for an echo that week. And they said it's extremely high. But that can happen sometimes when you're feeling distress. And we were having a distressing week. And nothing else went on with it. And once that was a thing, and they're like, yeah, it's really high, You, you should watch that. And then they said, you know, it just happens around pregnancy. You should be fine. It was never explored further than that. That's crazy. Yeah, I thought it was odd when I had an echo. It was high. And I thought, you know, you gave me some blood pressure medication. Should I be continuing with that? No one seemed concerned. Once again, we were back to this thing of you'll be okay. I'm trying very hard not to cry for you right now. <laughs> yeah, it's it's was definitely a lot and it it was hard to be in this recovery place and feeling like I failed so badly. And I know we can look at it and say, there's no way you could have delivered naturally. This isn't on you, but still it was my body that went through this process. So my body once again has not done the normal process. Everyone seemed to have been doing. I was a fool in my pregnancy thinking everything was going so smoothly. I knew something was around the corner and that's just the headspace that I came out of the whole process with. Right. And that's going, linking back to your childhood trauma of just that has kind of perpetually just been with you your entire life. Yeah. Oh my goodness. How does your recovery for your C-section go? Okay. My recovery went well uh, for lots of people who listen to the podcast. I didn't take the advice of staying on top of my medication. Because once again, this is something that I, it's, it's been something I've always done of like, I can do it. The average person needs to take medication for pain, but I have to show that I'm better than the average person. I don't need the medication. So I did not stay on top of my pain medication whatsoever. I remember the first night I finally got home over the, after those five days, waking up in pain. At that point, I was still trying to breastfeed and I woke up, my husband said, I, I need something. I've 
I've gone too long without pain medication. And that's kind of when he put his foot down and he read all the medications is like, this is every four hours. This is every six hours. We're keeping these times. You're doing what you're supposed to be doing. Stop being so stubborn. So, you know, he stepped in and helped me because I get to the stubborn point that I'm not helping myself like I should be. And was he kind of just taking your lead because he was like, you're the mom, you've just gone through an absolutely horrific experience. Like, you know, your body, I'm just going to trust in your recovery and support you when you say you need to be like, you know, he was doing his best, but taking, following your lead. Yeah, I think definitely he thought, you know, my recovery, I need to advocate for what I need. I need to take that. He was doing all the stuff of making sure I was getting food, making sure I was comfortable doing all of that. But he thought, you know, if you need the medication, you take the medication. And then he realized you're going to be stubborn about this. I am taking over this. Yep. You probably should. And then you said you had mentioned that you were trying to breastfeed and I can't imagine what a challenge that would have been coming out of such a traumatic experience. Like your body was already in a trauma state, which is not conducive in any way, shape or form to producing milk and to getting a confident latch. And, you know, like your birth experience does not lend itself to being enjoying or even, you know, doing well with breastfeeding, I'm assuming. Yeah. And I had thought a lot about before I gave birth, am I going to breastfeed? I was keeping all my options open. And I had a lot of people that said to me, you know, breastfeeding is great, but it really hurts. And I was like, once again, I can take pain. I can do more pain than average person here. I'll do this. And starting off the breastfeeding process, obviously we know when you start off, you're not really producing anything. You're waiting for that milk to come in. So I was nursing at the times they tried a pump I got like one milliliter out of me nothing was really happening there and I cracked a nipple like right away and I feel like that was because I have all these IVs they won't take out the IVs in case I need something else I'm not able to move my wrist properly to learn how to properly hold my son I'm not latching properly and I felt like right away the environment I'm in after this traumatic birth, it's not setting me up to be doing this thing that's supposed to come so naturally. I yeah. use in quotations. <laughs> well, no, you're so right to use those quotations because like that is one of the biggest issues is like everybody says like it's, you know, breastfeeding is so natural, but it's freaking hard. It's hard. And it just didn't feel like, I felt like I'm already going in like great, I've started this other process and I'm coming in that I've already damaged a nipple in a day. Like, how is this not working? My body's failing. And I, once again, I'm in this idea of being weak, being a failure that I got in my head that even if I was to start breastfeeding, even if it was going to turn around, it was going to be great. There's no way what my body is going to give my son is going to be good enough because I come from this way of talking about my body having such low self-worth. So that's kind of what fixated in my head that like, I have to be the sole provider of nutrition with my terrible body. There's no way that I can do this for my son. So I was somebody that threw in the towel with knowing my mental health was shot. It was ruined that I needed to go to formula. 
it, it just did not see an option. I want to stop you there because yeah. throwing in the towel is not true. Yeah, just your absolutely. word choice there, right? You yeah. made the right choice for yourself and for your mental health. Yeah. You didn't throw sure. in the towel because that there, even that there just connects to how you view yourself, right? The defeat, like the weakness, right? Because you didn't throw in the towel. You made the right and the best choice for you and your son so that you were healthy. And that's what moms do. Yeah. Yeah. So it's definitely each step around the way, you know, having therapy is great, but it doesn't change the way you've learned to talk about yourself so negatively for so long. No, it's and, a long journey. Yeah. And I knew that even if I could turn my mind around to this, it wouldn't be fast enough to do breastfeeding in a successful way. I wanted to make sure my son was fed and he was fed to the best of my ability and breastfeeding did not seem like the way that that was going to happen at all for me. No. And there's like, you made the right choice and it's just, and, and I think that's one of the things too, right? That so many first time moms have this, are, are they're so pushed on, you know, breath, that phrasing of like breast is best. Like that's what you need to do. It's natural, but What's not natural is suffering so that you can try and breastfeed when it's not helping you heal, recover, or, you know, be in a safe, healthy space. That's not natural. That's, you know, hurting yourself. Yeah. And my husband was the one that it honestly, his support is what got me through it because I remember I was trying to breastfeed and I was crying and crying. And he said, I need to be able to help you as much as I possibly can help you. I want to help you. I can't help you as much if you're going down this route. And, you know, some people may look at that as him encouraging me to give up. I looked at it as he's trying to support me as much as he possibly can. And he can help me get feedings. He can help me get the sleep I need. I can get back to focusing on my recovery and knowing that my son's fed and feeling like I wasn't letting him down. It finally let me get over this hump of saying like, I have to breastfeed because everyone says I have to breastfeed. I have someone who loves me and supports me in what's going to be best for me. Yeah. Well, good for him for like, good for you to listen to him. Because I think one thing I, at least I know with my own like postpartum brain is like with hormones and everything is just, I don't necessarily listen to other people because, you know, I'm a little crazy. I'll admit that I'm a little crazy, but like good for you for, you know, hearing and also good for him for saying, knowing what he needed to say to get you to listen. Yeah. Cause that's very difficult. I am a stubborn person who does not listen and wants to control every single thing all by myself. And <laughs> the fact that, you know, he got through to me. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> once you made, once you made the change and your husband was able to take over feedings and you were able to rest and get your sleep. Did things turn around for you? I'd say for me, things turned around at around two weeks postpartum because by then I felt like I knew a routine with the baby. Um, 
things were going regularly. My son wasn't one that pooped a lot when he was first born. And that was something I fixated on a lot. He had those first poops that you're supposed to have as the baby comes out. And then we were going like five days without him pooping. And that was something that really made me anxious. Um, That first week appointment with my doctor, he said I should give my son a suppository. And I'm like, wow, this little tiny baby, we have to figure out how to give him a suppository to help him poop and figure out a formula that's not going to give him constipation. It felt like there was such a learning curve that those two weeks were really difficult. And then once he was pooping on a predictable pattern that I wasn't fixating on it, I knew when I had to give him a bottle, we had him sleeping. It felt like things were going in the right direction finally for me. And I would say that I still feel like things were okay at that point because I was in therapy. If I wasn't set up with a therapist right then, I think it could have continued to be a very dark road for me. Absolutely. So you think, yeah, I don't even want to hypothesize on like where, where that road could have taken you. Yeah. I remember when, um, I first talked to my therapist when, um, (laughs) it was the, like the day after still in the hospital and you could hear him. My husband says you could hear it through the phone. It was like tiptoeing on glass. He was like, Hey, yeah, I saw the log of your pregnancy. How are you feeling? He knew right away, like everything we prepared for did not happen. It, it all went off the rails and he knew that we, we definitely have to continue through the phone to meet and talk because now we've got a whole nother type of medical trauma. We're adding to something I'm just starting to unpack past medical trauma with him from. Right. Well, thank goodness that you are set like you have, you had already been set up with someone and that you are still set up with someone because like, I think there are so many people, pregnancy, like moms, anybody, like everybody could benefit from having a counselor and a therapist, like, and speaking to someone professionally, whether or not you feel like you have no, no reason to talk to them. Everybody needs to benefit from it. And the fact that you have taken those steps to to take care of yourself mentally is like absolutely amazing. So well done for you. Thank you. Took 20 years. Well, I guess it wouldn't take 20 years. It took a long time once I finally had a doctor that listened to me to be set up through the public system for us in Canada. But it's still, it it took, took well over a decade for me to actually start to say, my mental health is not where it needs to be. And that's going to be something that though it doesn't impact me day to day, when it does impact me, it impacts me seriously. And I need to have a game plan. I need to have something in my back pocket of how I can deal with when these stressors come up. Wow. You have had like such an amazing journey and not, I don't like, you know, you, you got your son, you have your son and he's healthy, which is amazing. But your your pregnancy was was good, but your birth journey was not. So I'm sorry. Yeah. That, I'm so sorry that that was your experience, especially your first experience. I'm so sorry for that. Yeah, and at least what I come in comfort with of knowing I do want to have more children. I know already 
whatever way it goes, my next birth is a scheduled C-section. They're doing that right off the bat. I know. And it still can help that planner and me that I know when I'm going in, it's going to happen. I've been told it's such a different experience if it's a scheduled C-section. So that's kind of giving me hope that even though this was such a traumatic birth experience, I still want to go through this again to have more children. You are an amazingly strong woman. I try. <laughs> I, it's hard for me to take compliments. I still, you know, I'm still in that young 12-year-old mindset of weakness. Well, I try, but I'm very awkward when someone says you're strong, you're brave, because I, I still don't feel it. Well, you don't have co- unplug your headphones or something, but you are absolutely like you are such a strong woman. So like, thank you so much for sharing your experience. I'm sorry that it was so horrific and so horrible, but thank you for sharing it. it it's good definitely to, to talk it out from start to finish. Cause I don't feel like I've done that with anyone and to kind of unpack how it makes me feel. It's beneficial for me as well. Thank you for listening to this episode of That Pregnancy Podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for an upcoming show, we would love to hear from you. You can connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. We are at Best Life Moms Club. Until next time.